Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. And it's something I think we're all top of mind about starting a new year, and that's mental health. And I've got Dr. Luttrell. She's a Ph.D. clinical psychologist. She's a full-time instructor at Georgia State, and she teaches in the School of Social Work. In addition, she has a master's in biology and immunology. In 2015, she wrote a book. Neuroscience for Psychologists and Other Mental Health Professionals. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm pleased to be here. You know, everybody's been talking about, oh, should I have New Year's resolutions? You know, what should I do? And I think everybody's worried. I think we all thought we'd be going into 2022 in a lot better mental health state uh, because of the the virus and the Omicron. And so I think people are really interested in what kind of perspective should they have on mental health? Because, you know, so many of us, we're, we're just, we don't want to acknowledge it because of the stigma associated with it. I don't want to say I have a mental health problem. If I do, you're not going to want to be on my show. So, you know, what do you find? What is your perspective on mental health? Well, um, you know, I think the field of psychiatry has appreciates that mental health is more than neurotransmitters, that the mind and the body are connected, and what is happening in the body, particularly the immune system, can impact how a person feels, behaves, and whether the individual will be resilient in the face of stress. I will focus focus on Uh, depression, psychosis, and anxiety, in particular uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, And I'll be talking about how the immune system plays a role in each of these disorders. And then I will also focus on what can be done to reduce inflammation. And here I'll talk about lifestyle changes and changes in diet that contain inflammation and ameliorate stress. Well, I think, you know, we've got a lot to talk about because I think, number one, everybody has inflammation and a lot of people. And sometimes we're we're doing it to ourselves. It's what we eat. It's how we don't get the right amount of sleep or or how we treat our body. And this is one of the biggest challenges, Dr. Luttrell, that I face. You know, people will come in and the reason they don't want to talk about mental health is because they don't view it, they don't give it, they don't think it's equal to physical health. And I love that your approach, you know, you're focused on the mind and body connection. Okay, Uh, perhaps I can explain what inflammation is. Uh, And inflammation, there are two arms of the immune system. There's the innate system and there's the adaptive immune system. And it's the innate system that mediates, that causes inflammation. And the innate system, uh, there are different uh, leukocytes in the innate system than the leukocytes in the adaptive immune system. The innate system fights bacteria, fungi, and viruses. And uh, the innate system 
is, lo is looking for molecules that are common to all the pathogens in a group. The innate system is much less specific, and it, uh, the innate system leukocytes release uh, molecules toward the pathogens that are very uh, damaging and sometimes can uh, also impact host cells as well. And so it's very important to quickly downregulate uh, the innate system after the pathogen has been cleared. And if it doesn't get downregulated, then you get things uh, like increased risk for cancer as well as cardiovascular disease. Go ahead. When you explain this to people, do they, I mean, because I'm listening to you and I, and I understand it because I, I touch, my world touches on your world, but do you find that the app, will you have that conversation with one of our listeners that they'll understand what you mean? Well, uh, when I teach my classes and I go over this material, um, I, I tell them to ask me questions if they don't understand it. That's a great way to get participation and to get clarity. So right. I think I think that the, you know, and you you probably have taught it for a good while, and so you probably are, are able to break it down for them. Um, yeah. So, Do you want, uh, can I tell you about uh, the the uh, adaptive system? Sure. Okay, in contrast to the innate system, we, there's also the adaptive system, and this is the system that gets activated by vaccinations, and the cells in this system, that is the T and B cells, they're only going to, to go into action when they see a particular protein, and your listeners are probably aware that uh, for vaccinations for COVID, what they're what they're targeting, the protein that gets targeted, is, is uh, the the protein used to the spike protein that that the virus uses to go into cells. Uh, but the T and B cells won't get activated unless they see that particular protein. So that means that their activity is much more targeted and much more specific, and so you get much less damage to host cells, uh, host cells by the adaptive system. Uh, and then uh, the other thing about the adaptive system is once it gets activated, we have memory cells that will be available to make a quick response if there's a second threat. And one of the things that is known uh, uh, from early work by Janice Kekel Glazer and Ron Glazer with Alzheimer's disease caregivers is that people who are under stress, like giving uh, care to an Alzheimer's patient, uh, as a group, they show higher levels of inflammation. And there are inflammatory factors that are part of this innate system that can be measured in the blood. And uh, so not only are people who are stressed out, are they more inflamed, but but uh, the glazers also showed that uh, although their their innate systems are activated, their adaptive systems that is uh, are not. Uh, in fact, they respond to vaccinations much less well. So, so is that, 
Is that any kind of stress or is it just a, is it physical stress, mental stress, a combination? Well, I think uh, Alzheimer's caregivers, it's mostly mental stress, right? Right. Although, you know, when you think about, I think about the care that my mom required, it required lifting and transporting. And so there, you know, it, it just made me think about there is some physical stress as well. Well, yeah, I, I I would not call it that because I think, you know, uh, lifting, you know, it, 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 you can call that exercise and exercise is good for, for stress, right? Good. Yep. Right. 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 And uh, I think also Stephen Cole, he he is a psychologist and he uh, he looks at the genes that uh, are associated with either the innate system or the adaptive system and what he has found is that people people who are lonely are high on inflammation but low on proteins in the adaptive system but those who are high on well-being and those people who have a sense of purpose are strong on the adaptive system and also show less inflammation. So in other words, those systems uh, can be inversely related to each other. So it's interesting to me that, you know, that lonely people are high on inflammation because I think loneliness causes depression, causes a lot of things in our body and in our mind. Okay. Well, talk to me a little bit more about you know, why do you, you think that there's a link to depression and inflammation, correct? Yep. Uh, and here, here are the findings uh, that support that. And here, uh, major depression is believed to be an inflammatory condition. And as a group, uh, people, people with depression, uh, on average, show more inflammatory markers. But it's not everybody. Uh, it's only 35 to 45% across studies uh, of the depressed people who are high on inflammatory markers. And then there are also studies where w- what they can do is image uh, brain microglia, that is the brain's white blood cells. And here, uh, the scans of depressed people show more activated uh, microglia in their brains. Oh, that's okay. All right. Then then there have been uh, the use of anti-inflammatory drugs. And Chuck Rathone, he used an antibody to an inflammatory hormone, uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha. And those depressed people with elevated inflammatory markers uh, did respond to that drug. Their uh, depression ameliorated although this group of people did not respond to, di- to traditional anti, um, antidepressants. So, in other words, you, you need to target the, the inflammation rather than assuming people will respond to the antidepressants because the, the depressed people with high inflammation don't respond. Well, I also- see there's also a literature on the use of aspirin and COX-2 inhibitors, which have been demonstrated to have antidepressant effects. 
So, you know, I get a lot of people that come into my clinic and they say they're they're resistant to antidepressant medication. So that kind of that it's interesting to kind of have some understanding about that. Yeah, I I also um actually antidepressants unless you're extremely depressed, that is hospitalized, don't work. And this is Irving Kirsch. And what Irving Kirsch did was to go to the FDA and ask for all the studies on antidepressants. And effectively, um, you know, they uh, for people who are mildly or moderately depressed, uh, there is no difference between uh, placebo and drugs. And on the average uh, difference between uh, people on active drug and placebo is two points out of 52. So, you know, it, it's not a big effect. Well, you know, I've never, I've never been a big believer in medication, but that's a natural bias that I have, a negative bias that I have, because medication has never really worked for me. You give me an antibiotic and I get a red rash on my face. So it's just not something that is a natural um, place for me to turn for relief. So it's interesting to hear there is, it's not just my natural bias. There's a lot of science behind it. Oh yeah. There's a lot of science. Yeah. And as, uh, if you go to the, to uh, the website of that in America, Robert Whitaker, he's written extensively on this and, and, uh, the, um, the uh, Irving Kirsch's book is called The Emperor's New Drugs, and he, he has, as I say, got all the studies from uh, the FDA, and, uh, you know, effectively, the antidepressants are ineffective. How difficult was it, do you think, for him to get all those studies? It's, it, there's, a, it, there's a law that says, you know, public access. Well, I'm glad we have that law. Yeah, it, it's good. Because I know pharmaceutical companies have a different view um, than, than other people do. Yeah, they're making money off of it. Yeah, and it's not something that they're, I have found my clients, you know, when my clients have tried to get information about the drugs, they seem to have a hard time getting that information. Well, um, you know, what advice I, would you have for them? Well, uh, you can get, read my book, Neuroscience uh, for, for Psychologists and Other Mental Health Professionals, because in each chapter, I go over the drugs. And, you know, the question, uh, I think, is how well do they work? And as I say, you know, if you're impressed by two points out of 52, um, you know, then you should use the antidepressants. But, you know, effectively, uh, they don't work. No, if you're impressed out of two points out of 52, I would say that you're at a, a very desperate level. Yeah. And right. Right. And they don't work. So and, and do they have pretty hefty side effects? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that that happens with antidepressants, and here you can find the references in a paper, Frontiers in Psychology, uh, that I published a couple years back, uh, but there's a whole lot of evidence that antidepressants over the long haul will increase inflammation. 
uh, and they increase metabolic syndrome, they increase all kinds of inflammatory markers. So, you know, effectively, they're harmful. So why are they so widely used? Why is that the first thing that we do when in a doctor's office? When all you've got is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And psychiatrists don't get trained to do anything except write prescriptions. And so, you know, that, and if you go there, that's what they're going to give you. Because that's, well, that's a that's, good point there. That's all they know. I mean, and, you know, when you think about it, and I'm, you know, I, I'm certainly not a doctor, but I, when you look at what, a medical education involves, it's my understanding, it involves a great deal around pharmacology. That's what it involves. That's correct. And so I guess it's just, and I can remember, I can remember the time when medications first started coming out. And, you know, I think we were all so hopeful about it that we wanted to believe it. And then the, the, longer we went on with it and the more the more we, you mentioned side effects and the more downside we saw to it the more you know we began to speculate on that that's yeah it's that, the thing about antidepressants if you're on them for any period of time there they do have pretty severe withdrawal effects and uh, Christine Amapour, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, she, there's an interview that she did with, with uh, Ellen Francis, who was in charge of uh, putting out the DSM-4. And he talks about the fact that uh, the, the, the antidepressants are associated with severe withdrawal effects that people get very depressed um, and it, they think it's their re depression returning when in fact what you're looking at is withdrawal effects. That is amazing to me because we're on the DSM, what, six or seven now? And so, we're going to... They're working on six, yeah. We're going to take a break, and but when we come back, I'd like to pick that conversation up. We'll be back after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. <laughs> are you afraid of? I had a friend who was scared to use a toothpick. I guess I never realized that more people choke on toothpicks than anything else. What's a word for the fear of pointed objects? Eichmophobia. And genophobia is the fear of choking. 
I don't think any of us are afraid of vending machines, but more than 10 fatalities occur each year from people shaking them. A more common fear is peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. I've never been able to figure out why, except I just found out peanuts are common ingredients used in making dynamite. What's the word for the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth? Arachabuterophobia. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We were talking about depression and medication and how ineffective it is. And then, you know, it made me start thinking about what gets people in a, de- a depressed state. And I think that stress has so much to do with our mental attitude and our mental capabilities. We're either worried about the past or, or worried about the past or worried about the future. And I think it keeps us in that fight or flight mode. It keeps us in a stressed out mode. What have you seen? What have you studied with stress? Well, um, uh, yeah, I think, you know, the the animal model for creating depression is uh, subjecting you know, the animal to to uh, uncontrollable shock. And uh, that's called learned helplessness. And what uh, Meyer and Watkins found was that uh, when they created uh, learned helplessness in animals, if they put a uh, chemical sponge to soap up inflammatory hormones uh, in the brain, that the animal no longer looks stressed. So again, you know, the stress uh, is operating through in, in uh, creating inflammation. So that I guess would apply with as well with anxiety. Yep, and you know, also human uh, studies where there's a, a paradigm called the trier social stress procedure. And there you have research participants talk about, uh, talk about their most embarrassing moment in, to an audience of scowling people. And, uh, and again, this procedure then raises the inflammatory markers in blood. So again, you know, the mechanism for creating the depression is through the inflammation. Yeah. And there's also uh, studies done with uh, a procedure called cyberspace, where people are um, presumably thrown around a, a frisbee, <coughs> and they suddenly get excluded by other participants, and uh, that also will raise inflammation. And uh, what what uh, Naomi Eisenberg did was to give her subjects aspirin before they were subjected to uh, this cyberspace procedure, and there uh, they did not get stressed out by being socially excluded. So something as simple as an aspirin could could impact that. Sure. Yeah, it's an anti-inflammatory. That's very interesting, you know, because I wonder... There is a literature, and uh, aspirin uh, it, it can have antidepressant effects. 
Well, what about, you know, I know there's been studies done that look at how people in low status jobs that they can't right. control their work schedules. What does that do to their body? Yeah, that that was shown, done uh, 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 in the White House studies and the White House studies uh, were done in, in uh, the British government uh, sector. And there everybody has um, health care. So, you know, the differences are not going to be differential health care. Uh, but what they found is that people in low status jobs who couldn't control their work schedules, they were higher on inflammatory factors as well. Hmm. So what about people with PTSD? Uh, there, um, what, there was an interesting study done by um, early, and uh, this was part of the Marine um, uh Marine fitness study, if I make sure I got the right, uh, the right, uh, yeah, what they, they found, they had measured people on inflammatory markers before they were deployed. And what they found was that, that, uh, inflammatory factors, markers being elevated in the, the Marines, predicted who was going to uh, be, develop PTSD after exposure to trauma. So they could predict this before the trauma occurred? Yep, yep. So it, it, if you, this was the marine uh, resiliency study, and they had measured inflammatory markers in the blood draws before the, uh, the marines were deployed uh, to battle, and uh, the inflammatory status was predictive of who was going to develop PTSD. Well, that's interesting because, you know, when I think about the neurobiology, I think about neurotransmitters. I don't yeah. think about anything else. Well, uh, in fact, inflammation does affect neurotransmitters. And here, uh, you know, what... what uh, what Jennifer Felger, and she's the colleague of, uh, of Andrew Miller here at Emory, and what Jennifer Felger found was that what happens with inflammation is that the, the, uh, the inflammatory factors, their production, uh, uses up what's called uh, biopterin, uh, tetrahydrobiopterin, and that is the cofactor for making dopamine. And, and so what happens is, is you de, inflammation causes you to de, de, deplete the factors that you're going to need to make dopamine. And what Jennifer Felger also uh, showed is that uh, you can, uh, you can um, increase the rate at which new biopterin is made uh, by taking folate and, and S-adenosyl methionine, which is sold at Costco. Oh, my gosh. It's yeah, in our there, hands. Yeah, there's, there's a literature uh, by Mario Fava on using SAM, uh, that S-adenosyl methionine, and folate, and those also are pretty good, um, pretty good antidepressants. And those are available at places like Costco's. Like Costco, yeah, or Sam's Club, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we just all you can order it for off of Amazon too. So for people that are interested in exploring that, 
Say the name of that again really slowly. S-adenosyl methionine, M-E-T-H-I-O-N-I-N-E, and folate, F-O-L-A-T-E. And again, you can order them off of Amazon. Well, that's great information to share because I think many of us feel like that, you know, we don't have access to what we need. We don't necessarily want to fill our body full of medication. So we don't go to the, we don't have that discussion with our doctor because they don't honestly have the same discussion that you just had with us. Okay. Right. Right. So, I mean, that's valuable. Good. Yeah. And um, there there are also all kinds of uh, things you can do to decrease inflammation and, and have been shown to decrease stress uh, and increasing heart rate variability. Uh, what heart rate variability is, it's a marker for, um, for, for, for how strong your parasympathetic nervous system is. And the parasympathetic nervous system innervates uh, lymph nodes and will slow down the activity of the innate arm of the immune system. And so uh, increasing heart rate variability is very good. And how can you do that? Well, um, by being around people you trust and you love, but, uh, by taking care of others, and there are studies that show that. And uh, also increasing heart rate variability, there are um, apps you can put on your phone uh, that will teach you uh, how to slow down your breathing, and that, which is what you do during meditation, uh, that will increase heart rate variability. So there are, as I say, phone apps, which I've got one. Uh, and uh, and then also meditation, uh, yoga has, is a pretty good antidepressant because you're incre- decreasing inflammation through increasing heart rate variability. And then there are all kinds of other dietary interventions uh, to to uh, de- decrease inflammation. And pretty much uh, what you want to do, uh, uh, turmeric is, is very good for decreasing inflammation. And probably the best one to decrease inflammation is omega-3s. And omega-3s are found in fish and then also walnuts, among other things. But fish is a very good source. And what what happens with the omega-3s is that Omega-3s get integrated into the cell, uh, the cell walls of, of white blood cells. And uh, when there is inflammation, what happens is uh, some of those, whatever the cell wall has, uh, gets cleaved off. And, uh, and if you, you start with the cell wall being composed of omega-3s, then uh, you're, you're your body will release resolvins and resolvins. There are receptors for resolvins on uh, white blood cells and you will slow down inflammation through that mechanism. Well, listen, talk makes me think that I have some control over the amount of inflammation I have in my body. You very much do. You very much do. Yeah, that's, that's, 
you know, the whole point here. Yeah. And, you know, so there is what you eat. And then I think you also want to pay attention to what you should not be eating. And uh, and that it would be saturated fats uh, are bad for inflammation. And then also uh, Andrew Gerwurtz, who works on uh, gut microbiota, and what he finds is that that the, uh, the, the emulsifiers, the preservatives that they use uh, to extend shelf life in uh, products like bread and ice cream, uh, those are highly inflammatory and they will lead to uh, all kinds of gut microbiota or gut, gut bacteria that are highly inflammatory. So uh, a lot uh, depends on, you know, avoiding the things that are going to be pro-inflammation and eating the things that are going to be anti-inflammation. Other things that we know is that that for promoting good good bacteria in your gut, you want to eat a lot of fiber because the good bacteria which make uh, short-chain fatty acids, which are also anti-inflammatory, uh, they like they like fiber. So you know, the more uh, apples and you know fiber that you can put in your diet, the better off you're going to be. So you mentioned apples. Can you give us another couple of examples of good fiber? Uh, celery, uh, uh, celery, uh, spinach. Uh, vegetables okay so yeah so use your basic common sense about what what a good nutritional diet is comprised of okay well uh, you know basically i think you know that what uh what a good nutritional diet is composed of is you know the one that the american heart association recommends and you know there is a whole literature on um, the Medita- Mediterranean diet, and there's studies that you know Mediterranean diet improves uh, improve improves depression, improve it, it, well it improves depression. It also sets you up so uh, to fight heart disease. Um, you know basically. Uh, and what what you want is lots of vegetables, lots of lots of fish, and heavy on omega threes, uh, and stick a, stay away from uh, uh, um, preservatives. Um, so if you get fresh bread rather than you know the stuff you buy at the grocery store, because uh, it's going to be full of preserv- preservatives, uh, that would be a good thing to do. Well, you know, that's that's easy. Everything you've talked about in the last couple of minutes is easy to do. And I think that that's it takes away the fear because I, I can't tell you how many clients come in and like, well, I don't know. You know, I get, I get so many different opinions on diet and and what do you think is the best diet? And my only response to that is stay away from processed food. Right. Yeah. And and also, you know, I think uh Adding fish to the diet is a, is a very good thing. There was a study in the literature where that Kiko Glazer, again, what they did is they put uh, medical students who were going, on, uh, who were um, taking exams, 
And they showed that you could reduce their stress by having them load up on omega-3s. I may have to start increasing my omega-3s. <laughs> yeah, it, that, that's probably you know, some of the best stuff you can put in your duck. As I say, you know, fish is a very good source and walnuts is a very good source. And there are other things as well. Well, you know, and that's such good information to have because I'm thinking about with inflammation. I'm thinking about diet. Do you think sleep? How do you think yeah. sleep rolls into inflammation? Yeah, yeah. Well, lack of sleep, of course, yeah, it does uh, increase inflammation. And there are also studies that uh, show that uh, shift workers that are, you know, continually uh, changing uh, when they sleep. Uh, that's very bad, and they have higher rates of cancer. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I, I in my world, I think of the brain's foundation is sleep and diet. Because if you're not, if you're, when you're asleep, that's the only time the brain has, those little glial cells can come out and clean up all that toxic waste. And if your diet... If you're just eating all processed food, you're just putting more toxins into your body. So it's good to know that that those two basics roll over into your philosophy as well. Uh huh. Sure. Yeah. That, as I say, you know, all uh, that this is kind of what my book covers is, uh, you know, what uh, non-medical ways are non. Uh, um, non-drug ways to, to cure um, psychosis actually uh, responds as well and uh, as does uh, depression and anxiety. So when you say psychosis, it makes, it takes me back to dopamine because I associate that there's a connection there. There is. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. And um, well, for the, the story on um, psychosis, you know, one of the things in, in Australia, Aminger, who's a psychiatrist, he identified um, traits that uh, are predictive of who is in, in whom people, uh, psychosis will later emerge. So, you know, he identifies little kids and can look at traits that, that are predictive of, the, of uh later emergence of psychosis. And what, what he found was that to prevent the emergence of psychosis, um, the, the antipsychotic drugs were of no help at all. But guess what worked to decrease uh, the emergence of psychosis? Want to take a guess? Dopamine. No. Oh, okay. Omega-3s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And yeah, there's a whole lot, you know, psychosis, you know, the, the proximal cause of psychosis is too much dopamine release in the, uh, in a particular part of the brain. Uh, however, people have not found uh, problems with the dopamine system in those in whom uh, uh, there is an emergence of, of psychosis. But what they have found is that there are cells called uh gabinergic inner neurons in uh, in the hippocampus, which control the release of, of uh, dopamine from the ventral te tegmental area in the brain. 
And so the problem with psychosis is going to be uh, the, 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 the cells that control the release of dopamine. It's not the dopamine itself. And again, uh, the, what can impair the function and can destroy those interneurons is inflammation. Yeah. So once again, with psychosis, we're back to inflammation being a pretty big trigger again. Well, you know, we've got about, you know, six, seven minutes left in the, in the show. And you okay. kind of, we've touched on your book a, a few times. And, it, you know, are there, if there were two or three takeaways from that book that the average listener would enjoy knowing, what would they be? Well, uh, boy, yeah, I think um, in, well, basically, you know, what the book does is it goes through, um, you know, what, what causes depression, what, what causes uh, psychosis, um, I cover bipolar as well. And, uh, and then, you know, I talk about all of the ways uh, to do something about it. And, uh, and so each chapter deals with a, another issue. Um, uh, let's see. And in the, in the last chapter, what I did, uh, what I talked about is how to integrate mental health treatment into primary care. And one of the things that I think I would do is not, uh, you know, not, not use the terms in the DSM because I think they're quite stigmatizing. And instead of talking about mental illness, we should be talking about mental health and how to keep people happy. Well, and I would like to suggest that we we create mental health with brain health because we think of the the brain's an organ just like the heart, and we need to start we need to start thinking about our mental our brain health. It just it's just as important as our physical health. Yep, and I think I think the surprising things about it is that. You know, everything you do for your physical health uh, are also going to have all kinds of implications for your mental health as well. Because, you know, the as I said, you know, for the diet, if you go to the American Heart Association and look at what they say you should be eating, that's what you should be eating for your mental health as well. Well, that's good to know. And, and, and you know, one thing that I find people don't understand is that mental health issues can cause physical health issues. There's a link. There's a link between diabetes. There's all kinds of links between there. Yeah, the, the, this is correct. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and yeah, and I think you know the other things we I've talked well we've talked about diet, but exercise, getting sleep, uh, you know, being or, or spending time with people you trust and, and care about. All of those things are also going to uh, play in and and have it have impact. Well, you know, thank you for mentioning about spending time with people that you care about, because that social interaction is so necessary for the brain. And it's so important to keep us, you know, keep our mental fitness as well as our emotional fitness. So we've got about three minutes left. Where if where if people want to find you, if people want to learn more about you, I mean, I know you're a full time instructor at the Georgia State University, but 
Do you have a website? Can they find you online? Where can they get your book? Uh, okay. Uh, my website is Latrell Neuroscience of Wellbeing. Uh, so you can go, or, and if you just Google my name, Latrell, L-I-T-T-R-E-L-L, uh, the website will come up. Um, I have blogs for uh, Mad in America, uh, so you can read some of my, my blogs there as well. And then uh, um, what else? Uh, yeah, you, you, you can find my Vita uh, on my website. And also, uh, if you go to ScholarWorks at Georgia State, you can pull down all of my publications. My book is available through uh, Amazon. Well, that is, you know, thank you for putting so much information out there that people can access. Because I do think that's one of the biggest problems that we have when people don't do anything. It's because they don't know how to get the right information. And getting having access to that and being able to just get on everybody well most people have access to a computer and say okay i'll go to georgia state and uh you know or i'll i'll look up dr latrell l-i-t-t-r-e-l-l and i can pull out blogs she's written i think those make it easy for people not that we should have to make it easy for people but sometimes we do and you know i've learned so much on this show talking with you and it's really made me more aware of it's not just you know when when here I'm thinking about it's all about neurotransmitters and and it's so much more than that and the amount of research that you mentioned during our conversation I'm amazed at how much is out there and how much is known and I think that if we just kind of We'll go back to what we where we started in the very beginning. The having the right perspective on mental health is so important. And starting the starting 2022, this is something. This is a great time for people to stop and and think about what they're going to do to improve their mental health. I'm going to pick up your book because I know that there are some things in there that I can use. And again, that's Neuroscience for Psychologists and Other Mental Health Professionals. Dr. Latrell, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you. It's been fun. Thank you. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio.